Hey, welcome to the Scrum WGBH's Politics Podcast. I'm Adam Riley. In this episode, you're going to hear about the very strange situation at the Bristol County House of Correction and Jail. On May 1st, Sheriff Thomas Hodgson says he and his deputies were attacked by undocumented immigrants who didn't want to be tested for COVID-19. But the detainees say they were attacked by staff for refusing to be tested in a medically unsafe manner. There's a bigger context here. A lawsuit has been filed on behalf of the detainees, saying conditions there put them at risk of contracting COVID-19. And a federal judge just ordered that everyone at the facility be tested and no new immigration detainees be accepted. In a few minutes, you'll hear from Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz, who tried to gain entry to the facility, as is her right by state law, but was denied. You'll also hear from Sarah Betancourt, the Commonwealth MAG reporter who broke the story of that May 1st incident. But first, I'm joined by Peter Kadzis to talk about the bigger political state of play in Massachusetts surrounding COVID-19. Peter, how goes it? Pretty well, Adam, all things considered. You can probably hear the dog in the background. Is that uh, is that the corgi that I'm hearing? That is the corgi, which means um, it's too early for the mail. Someone is walking by, no doubt. It's not that you skipped the walk today or anything like that? No, not yet. All right. As many of our listeners will know, there is a new Suffolk University WGBH News Boston Globe poll that shows broad commitment here in Massachusetts to the steps that we've been taking to contain the coronavirus crisis. Just a couple numbers. 38% of respondents say emotionally they could endure the current situation indefinitely. 29% say they could endure it for a few more months. That, even though 46% of respondents say they've lost income due to the pandemic. And there's 84% approval for how Governor Charlie Baker is handling the crisis. Were you surprised by these findings or did they kind of fit what your gut has been telling you? I was very surprised by question number 17, which is the number about emotionally, how much longer could people last? Um, that was the finding that jumped out at me right away. By the way, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I wouldn't have been able to take a, a guess because, you know, like everyone else, I'm at home. I really only see my family when I'm out walking the dog that you heard. Um, you know, we sort of nod. But I, 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 th I think there is a, a larger point about this, not an emotional point, but a, 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 a sort of structural economic point. Um, the American economy, and certainly the Massachusetts economy, has shifted so far away from manufacturing and towards services that many of us can work at home. Um, there are some real political implications in this, too. I mean, those people who can't work at home, obviously public safety officials, um, people who work in grocery stores, um, they don't have the same degree of choices that those of us who work in service industries and those of us who are probably much higher paid have. Now, th th there are exceptions, you know, um, tr tradesmen, plumbers, carpenters, you know, some of whom 
um, work for themselves and have a little more leeway. But COVID-19 is really revealing um, the real state of the United States. You know, who's taken care of in terms of health care, who's not taken care of in terms of health care, job flexibility. Um, there's going to be a lot to think about moving forward, I guess, is what I'm saying. That's a great set of points. And I've been sort of pondering the same thing, although not as incisively as you just did. I can't remember if I've mentioned this to you, but since this all started, we've basically been getting our groceries by ordering from Whole Foods and having the stuff delivered. And then, you know, the, the uh, most recent order is brought and we process everything carefully, leave some items out on the inside front porch, wash others, put them in the fridge. You know, we're, we're, we're being very strict when it comes to social distancing, when it comes to getting our food. And invariably, the people who are bringing the groceries up to our front steps are, uh, you know, unless I'm incorrect, and I don't think I am, they all look to be uh, Latino, you know, usually younger Latino men. And my wife and I are effectively counting on them to keep us safe. And they're going into stores where they are not maybe able to stay as far away from people and picking out the food that we then go on to eat. This is the first time I've described all this out loud. I've been aware of it, but I haven't said it out loud. And when I say it out loud, it sounds, uh, if not indefensible, it doesn't sound great. Well, it's a fact of life. Um, I, I don't know what that means. It's a fact of life, and there are plenty of implications. I have to say, though, that um, we're still going to the grocery store, and I'm incredibly impressed by the seriousness with which merchants, large and small, are um, taking this. Um, you know, the overall, the thrust of the poll was that in Massachusetts, at least, um, stay the course is the, the byword. And, and by the way, just a little footnote here um small places you know we're taking a real pride in being open taking all the necessary precautions um you know the, the this these are grim moments but there are um you know just a constellation of examples of many many people rising to the occasion let me ask you about Governor Baker's high approval rating for his handling of this. This poll came out right before that protest outside the state house, where a bunch of people from, I think we can say the hard right politically here in Massachusetts, were tossing around comparisons of what's going on right now to communism or fascism or uh, you know other noxious isms and basically casting the governor as an enemy of freedom. Are these complaints whether it's from the left or the right, are they outliers that don't mean that much or are they something that we should be paying attention to moving forward? Um, we should be paying attention to everything. Um, and that's not an easy answer. This is an unprecedented occurrence and we need to 
pay close attention to everything that happens because our retrospective analysis of what went right and what went wrong will be very important. Look, the people demonstrating in front of the State House, there's very strong evidence um, that this was a classic uh, astroturf demonstration with many at least some of the same social media accounts that were promoting um, the so-called straight pride parade earlier in the year were behind this. That means they're very pro-Trump. And that's a political fact. And Trump is a political force. Um, On the other call, say the nursing homes and other related things, the testing, um, First of all, a political point. In in talking to people either on the phone or through social media, people who didn't like Baker for perfectly acceptable political reasons before this happened, most of them have not changed their opinions. Um, you know, so there's political alignment. Um, that's not a nasty thing. That's a, a fact. But... I saw something on Twitter um, the other day that really riveted me. A tweet by Nate Silver, the statistical guru, if you will, um, just making a, a, a sort of bland point saying, look, yes, Trump has screwed up many things, but we don't know a lot about this virus and that as we learn more um, we'll be able to make more intelligent judgments. Now, that was interesting. What really hit me was when James Sawicki, who used to write the business, the weekly business column in the New Yorker, uh, and before that he was writing for Slate, um, w- when he took a megaphone to uh, Nate Silver's point, and in, in, in just said that there's an awful lot we don't know. Um, here's an example. In some Southeast Asian countries, you have a place like Vietnam, I believe, that has taken very stringent precautions. And some of its neighboring nations have been very, by Western standards, laissez-faire. But there's no real correlation between the stringency of one nation and, and the laxity of another. My wife was talking about this the other day, and she mentioned, I think she just read a piece in The Times about this, mentioned the Iran-Iraq contrast. You know, Iran's had this horrible toll, and in, in Iraq, it just hasn't worked the same way for whatever reason. Yeah. So there's a lot we don't know. I think what the poll shows, um, what's important about the poll um, is that Baker's seen as a steady hand. He's not showboating. He has a methodology that he's following and people are reassured by it. I don't agree with everything. I overall would give Baker pretty good marks. The, The same with Marty Walsh. It's interesting that on national cable, CNN and MSNBC, 
They use Mayor Walsh far more often than they use Governor Baker when shining a spotlight on Massachusetts. I think that's because Baker is so um, town managerish, and you know Marty Walsh is swaggering's not the word, but the more soulful, you know, big city mayor. Well, um, he also looks and sounds like Boston in a way that the governor, I would submit, doesn't. Well, that that could be, that that could be. Um, Since you mentioned Walsh, sorry to interrupt, but we didn't ask in this poll for people in Boston to weigh in on his performance. Were we to poll residents of Boston about the mayor's performance, how do you think they'd feel? I think similar to, um, I'm guessing, I would say similar to Baker. You know, Baker's problems are really within his own party. Um, the numbers in the poll showed Democrats overwhelmingly support him. Yeah, I want to say 93 percent approval from Democrats and 62 among Republicans or something like that. That's a ballpark. Well, Trump owns the Republican Party. You know, it's a na- in Massachusetts, it's still a minority. But, um, you know, that's a fact. The nursing home situation is very interesting. And um, this will transcend Baker. Um, What won't transcend Baker are the two soldiers' homes, which are under state control, and he'll own that. Um, He and the legislature, you know, will own that. I say and the legislature because I'd be very curious to know, have there been pleas in the past, in the pre-COVID days, five years ago, saying we need more money? There's a larger point here about more money. I've said on this podcast many times that given the current tax structure, Massachusetts cannot be as progressive as it wants to be. We just don't have the money. And by the way, we're seeing what that costs in part with the terrible toll that's taking place in all long-term care facilities. One of our colleagues... Linda Pollock, who now runs the BPL studios, uh, when she was still in the newsroom, used to frequently raise questions about these little stories about things happening at nursing homes. And, you know, she'd frequently just say, how good are these nursing homes? I think there's a good story there. Well, it turns out Linda Pollock was right, pure and simple. Yeah. In retrospect, it looks like Linda had the right idea. Before I let you go, I think you have a well-deserved day off tomorrow, the day after we, we are chatting right now. you have anything on tap for the weekend? I don't know. I'm just sort of excited about <laughs> I'm sort of excited about the day off. I haven't given it much more thought. I'm waiting for uh, my mail-order supply of pipe tobacco to arrive. Hopefully this afternoon I uh, have run woefully low. I think I may have three or four smokes left. Um, I hate to admit I'm a slave to pipe smoking, but that's my one remaining vice at my ancient age. Well, it's good to have that kind of thing right now. As you mentioned that, I'm thinking we should we should find a way to feature that in an upcoming podcast. Doesn't need to be a regular thing, but maybe just, a, you know, there's some ambient sound possibility, description of the flavors involved. I'd be open to that. All right, Peter, enjoy the long weekend. I'll talk to you soon. Yep, keep safe, everyone.
All right, on to what's happening at the Bristol County House of Correction and Jail. First up, State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz. She tried to get into that facility the day after a violent confrontation between staff and detainees, but she was denied access by Sheriff Thomas Hodgson. So um, tell me what happened when you got there on Saturday. Sure. Um, so, you know, as you as you sort of started off there, I you know, pulled up to uh, there's sort of a, a driveway with a guard gate. Um, you know, I was wearing a mask. The, the uh, gentleman staffing the guard gate was wearing a mask. Um, we conversed politely. I explained um, that I was a member of the legislature and was there to make a visit. Um, he radioed to uh, a supervisor uh, to come to talk to me about that. He asked me to uh, pull into the parking lot while, uh, while his supervisor was coming. Shortly thereafter, another gentleman, a captain at the facility, pulled up in his vehicle. Uh, we both pulled down our windows and we were sort of talking, you know, through the windows to one another. He asked if I was there for the press conference, which I did not know about at the time. Um, so I, I was a little confused by that, but I said, no, you know, I'm just here to make a visit. Um, would like to speak with uh, both uh, detainees and personnel in the facility about uh, the incident that happened last night um, and just, you know, make some general observations. Um, he asked for my ID. Uh, which I provided. Uh, he radio, you know, sort of uh, walkie-talkie did to somebody uh, who verified my identity, um, and then he asked me to wait a few minutes uh, while presumably he needed to go talk to other folks about what to do with me. Uh, he came back in about five minutes and um, said that uh, you know no no visits were being allowed uh, and asked me to leave the property. Um, I want to say here that the captain was very polite and very professional um, throughout this exchange. Uh, I then, you know, sort of reiterated that I was, I understand that they were not doing regular visits because of the public health situation, um, but that as a member of the legislature, uh, that, that I'm legally entitled to make a visit, uh, you know, it's not really, you know, again, I'm also trying to be polite here, but that, it, that it's not really a matter of discretion for um, the officers in charge of the facility that state law specific about it, that, um, that legislators and other officials are allowed to um, enter at any time. So I encouraged him to sort of recheck it uh, again with um, supervisors at the, and officers in charge of the facility. Um, he then became fairly stern that I needed to leave the property um, at that point. He said I was, you know, welcome. I, again, I encouraged him. I said, look, I don't want this to become, you know, this, I don't want anybody to get in trouble here. This is a matter of law. Uh, he said, you really have to leave, but you can check back at the guard gate in 10 minutes if you like. Uh, so I, I did. I pulled a, a, to sort of a parking lot across the street from the um, driveway, uh, waited 10 minutes, um, and then checked back in at the guard gate at, after that. During those intervening 10 minutes, I, I just happened to notice there were some press trucks that were pulling in to the driveway and then being waved in to the into the facility, into the parking lot. Um, so I had made some inquiries about that while I was waiting um, in my car during those 10 minutes um, and just happened to find out that there was coincidentally a press conference that had been called um, by the sheriff for that morning. So I assume that's why the press trucks were being waved in. So when I pulled back up to the guard gate, um, you know, I, I explained that the captain had said I should check back in in 10 minutes to see if there was a different answer. Um, the gentleman at the guard gate again sort of said, you got to talk to my boss, you know, you got to wait over there. So I did that again. The same captain came back and said, no, you know, the answer is still no. At that point, I asked also, he said, I understand that there's a, a press conference being held. If you will not admit me, 
uh, under you know Chapter 127, Section 36 of the General Laws as a member of the legislature, um, I'd like to attend the press conference. Um, as I understand, members of the media are being um, toured through the facility. And they also said no to that and, again, became sort of, you know, professional but increasingly stern that I needed to leave the property. So I did. Have you, in your time in elected office, run into a situation like this before where you've attempted to exercise this right of oversight that you have and not been allowed to? No, no. I and, you know, myself and other uh, legislative colleagues have um, exercised this right under the statute many times. Um, at other correctional facilities around the state without incident. If you had been able to get inside that day, what would you have wanted to ask detainees and staff? Um, you know, when I when I went down on Saturday morning, I, I went without assumptions. Uh, you know, I had heard, um, you know, troublesome, alarming accounts uh, in the late hours of the night or wee hours of the morning, you know, the night before. Um, so I, I was just there to ask pretty general questions about, you know, tell me what happened. Um, and I was uh, interested to speak both with detainees and with uh, personnel at the facility with those questions. Um, and also just to take some, you know, visual observations um, of, of what I could, uh, both of, you know, the state of the facility and about general wellness um, of the detainees. And I assumed that question, you know, general questions would then probably lead me to other questions, depending on what people said. But I didn't have sort of a, you know, a long prefab list of specific questions. Um, it was really about getting some independent eyes and ears into the facility because, you know, these checks and balances are enshrined in law for a reason. And that's because that when you when you carry a gun and a badge and keys to the cell door, you have enormous power, you know, over other human beings' lives. And that is even more so, right, in, in the context of these very intense um, conditions that we find ourselves in as a state right now, and even more so for correctional facilities. So this is a you know, time when transparency and oversight are even more important, and that's really why I made the visit, was just for good old-fashioned transparency and oversight. I know there are a few different investigations underway in the wake of the May 1st incident and your inability to get inside the Bristol County facility on May 2nd. Do you think you might take another crack at exercising your legislative right of access before those investigations have run their course? Or are you done trying to get into that particular facility? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm done, right? And that sounds a sort of a sort of, you know, giving up to defeat us. But I, um, I don't I don't suspect it's going to be a fruitful exercise to just sort of, you know, I, I don't want to make theater out of this, right? I was there for, you know, for a reason to talk to folks, to make make observations. Um, and I don't, anticipate, you know, I mean, look, if I hear otherwise from the sheriff or anyone in his department, um, I'd be happy to make the drive down to Bristol again, as I know several other of my colleagues would, who, who've expressed to me, um, they were thinking about making a visit as well. Um, but I, I'm not interested in making a theatrical standoff, right? I think that this is a this is a matter of law that needs to be resolved, um, whether it's through these investigations um, or through proper legal channels. You know, I think it also, you know, I should mention here that um, that in that second conversation that I had with the captain uh, at the facility, um, that that the sheriff's department asserted that state law did not apply um, under the pretext that the Bristol County Detention Center is a federal facility, which it is not. 
and it, it, it really, you know, by my lights and several other folks that I've talked to is a defiance of clear and established law. And so I think that really needs to be worked out before, uh, you know, it's not something that's going to get worked out at the doorstep of a facility. In the, um, in the days since, uh, since my, my visit on Saturday, um, family members and um, in particular, particularly troublingly attorneys have reported that they have also been denied access um, to their loved ones and clients in the facility. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a troubling pattern. And now more on the Bristol County situation from Sarah Betancourt. She's a reporter at Commonwealth Magazine, and she's been paying sustained, very close attention to what's happening at the Bristol County House of Correction and Jail. Can you start off by telling me, how did you learn about what happened at the Bristol County House of Correction last week? Um, so I started getting some messages from attorneys for detainees at the facility around 6.30, 6.45-ish, um, saying that they themselves had gotten phone calls about this. And after that, I just started making calls. Um, I have a source, non-official, uh, but someone who works at Bristol who confirmed that Sheriff Hodgson was in fact at the facility. Um, so we were able to confirm that first and then going from there, uh, the sheriff's office put out a public statement about their side of the altercation. For people who aren't familiar or for people who need a refresher, can you describe the two competing sets of claims around what happened? Because it seems pretty clear something big happened. It's just a question of what it was and who was driving it. The sheriff's side of things is that there were 10 detainees who earlier in the day had said they had at least two symptoms of COVID-19. And as a result of that, the sheriff's staff wanted to test them in the medical unit. Um, and when they broached that topic with the detainees, they said, no, we don't want to be tested. Um, and at some point, one of the detainees was on a phone. The sheriff told them to get off the phone, that they had to go down to the medical unit. He refused. And that started an altercation that resulted in the sheriff and others um, that work with the sheriff being rushed and then pushed out of the unit and that the detainees took over and caused $25,000 worth of damage, including ripping out the washers and dryers and pushing them up against the door. So that's sort of the sheriff's take of things. And now everyone's in solitary confinement. There were 26 people involved in that unit. Now detainees actually said, yes, some of us were exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19, but from other people who've been down to the medical unit, we've been told that there's some unsanitary conditions down there. We didn't want to be transported en masse. Um, because of you know social distancing, and we were actually worried about contracting the virus on the way down there. Um, so why can't we just get tested in our own cells um, right here on the unit so that we're not put at risk? And so they expressed that to the sheriff, um, and one of the detainees was on the phone with a reverend and he was asked to step away from the phone and then he said the sheriff assaulted him, beat him, and he was pepper sprayed, he has asthma, 
And that's how it began. They did mention the lockdown and being in the unit by themselves. And then the sheriff and his officers coming back with canines and and more pepper spray. And so that's sort of their side of things. Can you explain for people who might not be familiar with the facility, by which I mean, among others, myself, the medical unit that you're referring to, why would it be a source of concern? You mentioned unsanitary conditions, but what would it take to get the detainees from their cells to the medical unit to be tested? How much of a trip would that be? It wouldn't be a very long trip. It's still on the same sort of plot of land, um, but it would require them leaving securely. And from what the detainees were saying, they were going to be transported as a group, which it's sort of hard to be socially distanced as a group. Um, But one thing that was interesting was that in there's this ongoing court case called Savino versus Hodgson filed by Lawyers for Civil Rights, and it's a class action lawsuit um, calling for detainees to be released, and 50 have been released so far to house arrest. Um, And during that ongoing court hearing, there's been evidence submitted, and included in that evidence is a drawing of the unit um, done by medical experts. And nowhere on the unit is a washer and dryer. Um, So that was somewhat intriguing because it was part of the sheriff office's statement about how it was being propped against the door, which is something the Taney attorneys say is unfounded. So unless you're in there, it's sort of hard to tell. So taking into account that wrinkle, that it's not entirely clear that the things exist on that unit that the sheriff claims were used to help secure the unit on the part of these allegedly rebellious detainees, what else is your reporting suggested? Or what else are you able to say based on what you've learned about whose account is closer to the truth? Or is it still difficult to say who the aggressor was and who was being asked to do something unsafe or or was not? Well, it's sort of hard to tell because the desire for testing from the detainees has been there since the beginning of coronavirus. That's why they have a class action lawsuit. Um, In fact, just before our phone call, um, I was listening to a court hearing in which um, Judge William Young ordered that uh, coronavirus testing be made available from, and I quote, the sheriff on down so that detainees can find out whether or not they have coronavirus, but it's not required. So if a detainee ends up refusing to get the test, he will be treated as if he has coronavirus and the county can do as they please, which right now is solitary confinement. But he expressed some shock that there hadn't been very much testing going on, despite the fact that 10 vendors and staff members have tested positive, and many of them were on the units and no contact tracing has occurred. And he said that as well. So. I think both sides were accurate in saying, you know, we have people who are concerned about having COVID-19. It's more, when it comes to the physical violence, it's more of a he said, she said. Um, Yesterday, we were able to get some audio of a call that happened at the latter end of the altercation and immediately after when the sheriff and his correctional officers were sort of outside of the unit. And it was between an advocate attorney and two detainees, one of which had claimed that 
the sheriff had beaten him and sprayed him with pepper spray and sort of described the situation, which was very vivid if you listen to the audio on our website. So when you say it was vivid, to you, does that audio tilt the balance uh, for anyone trying to figure out what happened in favor of the uh, the detainees, at least more than it had been previously? Or is it still difficult to say? I think it adds a level of context. I think we're not going to be able to fully make these assumptions until we see the video. And then yesterday when I asked about the video, Bristol County Sheriff Office, the spokesman said, well, we're not going to be able to give We would love to give the video out so the world could see what happened, but we're not going to be able to do that until the investigations are over. So right now there's three investigations that are currently occurring, um, one through the uh, Department of Homeland Security's Office of the Inspector General, another through the state Senate, and yet another through Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey. Um, And there's no real timeline. So it's really hard to say, but he said, well, you know, we're not giving up the video till those are over. Let me ask you, before we wrap up, about the politics of this. The Mass GOP sent out a press release on, I'm losing track of my days here, Wednesday, talking about how the radical Democrats were trying to go after Sheriff Hodgson for enforcing laws that Congress has passed, basically saying or suggesting that uh, the investigations going on at the state level were evidence of uh, inappropriate liberal or progressive sympathy for uh, undocumented or illegal immigrants. Uh, Can you describe Thomas Hodgson as a political figure for anyone who might not be familiar with him? Because that seems like an important piece of this story. So on a local level, the sheriff has been in office for over 20 years. Um, He was appointed by Bill Wells, and he's sort of a respected figure in his community locally. Now, since Trump ran for office, um, he's aligned himself pretty strongly with the president's sort of anti-unauthorized immigration ideals and his policies. So for instance, in 20, I think it was 2017, the latter end, he offered to send, this is Hodgson, he offered to send some of the detainees at Bristol down to the border to help build the wall, for instance. Um, He's often at the White House or in DC uh, at Trump-related fundraisers. Um, and he's sort of known as the, you know, Trump spokesman for Massachusetts, so to say. Um, and Jim Lyons himself sort of aligns with that type of Republicanism. Like, say, if you were to compare Jim Sherman, Lyons yeah. to, say, Charlie Baker, for instance, that's a little... Those are two different kind of Republicans. So that's sort of the impression I've gotten of the sheriff. And I think a lot of people would agree with it. And he brought politics into his Saturday morning press conference. I mean, he spent, gosh, about a quarter of the press conference talking about Joe Kennedy and Senator Elizabeth Warren as well, saying that they're using immigration and some of these issues to sort of boost their own political platforms during their campaigns. Kennedy, Warren, and the entire Massachusetts congressional delegation sent a letter to the Department of Homeland Security's Civil Rights Office and the Office of the Inspector General asking them to both separately conduct investigations into what happened Friday night um, and sort of outline some of their concerns about transparency in all of this. What should the public make of this strange standoff that occurred when State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz tried to get access 
to the facility after this conflict occurred and was denied it. Because if I understand correctly, state law makes it pretty clear that she should be given access. So how how was she not able to get in? So, Adam, you're completely right on the state statute. The state statute allows the governor, members of the governor's council, state legislators to go into any jail or prison unannounced. And this is sort of a measure of transparency. But on Saturday morning, as the senator described it to me, she went to the facility. She spoke with some correctional officers. They went to someone higher up who came back and said, no, she can't go on there on their grounds. And also there was a press conference, but she couldn't go to that either. And she was wondering why. Something she mentioned to me was that one of the correctional officers said, well, this is a federal institution. And it, it, it's really depending who you ask, but that branch of Bristol County's jail is contracted with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is a, a branch of the federal government. So it's really up to interpretation, because if she was on federal jurisdiction, that state statute might not apply. But that probably would be a better question for an attorney. Um, I do know that the state Senate is including that in their investigation about, like, why did the statute not apply in this situation? And was that call that was made by Superior and that correctional officer wrong? One final question for you. Uh We've been talking a lot about the detainees. Who are the detainees that we're talking about as we try to figure out what exactly happened when this conflict occurred? There's two kinds of incarcerated people at Bristol. There's people who are there through um, under the county's jurisdiction, um, including some who are pretrial. And then there are others that are through the ICE unit. And those are people who are here illegally um, are unauthorized and have committed civil violations. But there are also some who've committed criminal infractions and have criminal convictions as well. And they sort of span the gamut. Like some of the people who've been released out of the 50 that I mentioned earlier are people who didn't even have pending charges. Um, But others have committed more serious crimes. And so that's the sort of thing that the judge is taking into account as he considers who he's going to release who's going to remain in the facility. Um, This is something that's completely new as of 45 minutes ago. Um, Judge Young did say that no one is allowed to enter the facility now, um, new detainees specifically, including if someone tests positive for COVID-19 and they go to an outside hospital, they cannot be brought back. As you know, there's this great big debate unfolding about the extent to which the state should decarcerate right now to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in correctional settings. I'm wondering if you think this is going to have a clear effect one way or another on that debate, whether it's going to make it easier or more difficult for proponents of decarceration to make their case, uh, or maybe it's too soon to say. What's your take on that? Well, there's a slew of decarceration cases that are occurring right now. In fact, there's a hearing at one about sentenced prisoners and those who are civilly committed right now for the SJC. So I think there's a really stark difference between ICE detainees and people in state and county jails just because they're under completely different jurisdictions. And there's also this level of politicization when it comes to ICE detainees 
and the fact that the president's policy needs to be taken into account. Now, it may seem like there's, oh, there's this huge number of ICE detainees that have been, been, been released from Bristol, 50, for instance. But it's not that big when you compare the SJC's decision from April 3rd, in which over a thousand people who were pre-trial and had low-level crimes have been released since then. Um, so comparatively, there are definitely more people who are not ICE detainees who've been released. And I think that trend will continue um, just because it, there's such a different, it's like comparing apples and oranges in a way. Um, and mostly because of who's in charge of the populations. Sarah Battencourt, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Really good to chat. Don't worry about it. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Sarah Bettencourt of Commonwealth Magazine and to State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz for taking the time to join us. And as always, thanks to you for listening. Subscribe to The Scrum, rate us if you haven't, and talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. That's S as in Serene and Matthews with one T. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.